Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. What's the most musical part of the fish? The scales. What do seals say when they get stuck in seaweed? Kelp! My guest today is Dr. Deborah Brosnan. She is the founder of Deborah Brosnan and Associates, a firm dedicated to finding smart solutions for environmental risks. Growing up in coastal Ireland, Dr. Brosnan knew she wanted to be a marine biologist from a young age wading around in tidal pools. In today's episode, she shares what coastal sustainability looks like and why living shorelines are some of the best defenses we have against climate change. We also chat about why Dr. Brosnan pursued higher degrees, and she shares what it's like being caught unawares diving while a volcano erupts overhead. Dr. Brosnan also shares how everyone can get involved in helping to make our oceans and communities more resilient. Please enjoy. Dr. Deborah Brosnan, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Cara, thank you so much for having me on with you. I'm really excited to be speaking with you and just wanted to thank you first off for the work that you're doing to reach out and encourage future generations of marine biologists. It's super. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. So I want to take your story back to the beginning for a minute. You grew up in a town called Limerick, Ireland, and I'm not going to lie the first time when I read that, I was like, is there, is there a Limerick about Limerick? I'm sure there is, Cara, and I'm pretty sure that I can't repeat it here. <laughs> Fair enough. Limerick is the oldest uh, city in Ireland. It was founded by the Vikings, and it was founded on the estuary of the River Shannon. So I grew up very close to the ocean, and we would spend all of our summers down on the, on the coast of Ireland, the west coast of Ireland, the County Clare. So I literally grew up in the sea. That's wonderful. And is that what inspired you to pursue your degrees in marine biology? Or was there like a particular experience during one of these uh, trips to the ocean? No, it was it was growing up so close to the ocean and literally being able to get up every morning and go down, go down on the coast. We had a beach, we had a rocky shore near us and just go and explore the rocky shore, which I did from probably about age four. And that really got me interested in just how extraordinary the ocean was. I think it kept me out of trouble because there was so much to do in the sea. I just wanted to be there all the time. (laughs) And and then watching TV programs. You know, there was Cousteau and there were various TV programs in the winter. And putting those two together, I, I really, from age 10, knew I wanted to be a marine biologist. It was a passion and I was determined to do it. And at that time, the word, word marine biologist didn't really exist in mm-hmm. Ireland. So I, I just heard it and I decided that was it. And then I had to figure out what that meant. I love it. On your rocky coastline, was there something in particular that kind of caught your eyes? Some of the algae that washes up or the critters or just kind of being around the ocean just brought that natural curiosity out? 
I think several things. One, the tide pools, just mm -hmm. being in the tide pools, going and at sometimes we would collect these little snails called periwinkles, which we ate, took home and ate. So harvest mm -hmm. there. Um, just just watching the way that small fish used to hide out in, in these seaweeds and trying to catch them and figuring out that they were smarter than us <laughs> in the pools. Um, and, and then just being able to go in the ocean and, and, you know, when you've got a little mask on, you can open your eyes and, and see things that you don't see on land. So I was the whole gestalt of being there, mm -hmm. just everything. That's amazing. Now, when you were in university, you went to Galway for university and studied marine biology. What were some of the things that you studied there? Were you able to, to get out in the field more? Yeah, a lot of this. So the program in Galway was very much a hands-on program. So we would do these you know, week-long field trips uh, to study algae along the Irish coast or to study marine life on the Irish coast. And then I did some interns at the Shellfish Research Lab, which is when aquaculture in Ireland was really just beginning. And the whole question was, well, how are we going to do this? How do we grow shellfish? How do we grow, um, you know, fish like salmon? And how do we do it sustainably? Mm -hmm. So really at the beginning of those questions. So I had an, like, an incredible exposure to so many facets of biology, geology, botany, aquaculture, but all related to the ocean. That's really wonderful. And at the end of it, did you go straight into your PhD or did you take some time and, and kind of learn a little bit more about the field? No, I, I always joke I took the scenic route in my career and I think <laughs> Really important for people if you don't necessarily follow the step one, step two, step three, four, and linear, it's just fine. You know, you can you can explore so many different aspects of it, try different areas, and come back. So, I did my uh, undergraduate and masters in Ireland. Then I moved to the U.S. and started working for NOAA when I was there, which is a National Oceanographic um, Organization, and spent uh, three years doing that then was back in England for a couple of years and then came to the U.S. to do my PhD. I really wanted to come to the U.S. because it has such an incredible program. And I worked with uh, Bruce Menge and Jane Lubchenco over in Oregon. And the reason I wanted to come to the States was because I realized that in, in the U.S., the PhD program really trains you as a professional scientist. It forces you to take courses. It forces you to present and not just do research. And at that time, most of the PhD programs in Europe were very focused on research. And I had done a lot of that. And what was missing was this additional part of the training, which I feel I got in the States. And then I never left. Fell in love with the US, huh? <laughs> yeah, I really did. It offers so many amazing opportunities for people. You can, you can follow your interests. You can follow your passion if you're willing to show up and work hard. There are opportunities there. And, and I certainly think that's true in marine, in the field of marine science, in the field of marine biology, and just the field of ocean conservation. There's so many opportunities and such great interest and an incredible number of people to talk to. It really is. So you had two huge, amazing life experiences that seem like they really pivoted your life into where you are today. And those are uh, diving under an erupting volcano and a plane crash. Could you kind of elaborate a little bit more on those stories? So the, the volcano uh, experience, we were actually out in the Caribbean on the island of Montserrat and looking at the coral reefs around the island with a view to uh, setting up a marine reserve. And 
and trying to figure out which areas were most important to fisheries, which were most important to recruitment, which were most important to tourism, and, and trying to figure out how we would zone, if you like, that area. And we were diving on one of the reefs. We had set up some permanent monitoring sites. And we were on our second dive. And I remembered it was such an extraordinarily beautiful day. I was there with my camera at one in the afternoon photographing the reefs. And all of a sudden I heard this sound, which I thought was a boat going by, but it wasn't. And the volcano erupted. Mm. And it was a, it's like an anthracite volcano. It's like Mount St. Helens in the, in the US. It is an ash volcano. Mm. So literally the ash just, it, it was an extraordinary explosion. It took out the main town, which fortunately was evacuated. Um, literally, it looks like Pompeii covered it in about a thousand feet of ash, but that ash also came into the water mm. and we were under the water when it came down. So we were, I think, very fortunate to survive and be alive, but literally I was under there and I first I thought my, my camera was malfunctioning because it was going dark. Mm. And then I looked up and literally everything turned completely black. And so I had two of my team with me and I, I wrote on a slate, I think there's been an eruption. They had figured it out before me. <laughs> um, I was saying, hello, this camera's broken. Um, but then we, uh, I literally, I said, stay there. I'm going to go and look. But they, they came up and we came up and this volcano, like this ash was covering everything. So um, being scientists, I said, you know, we should put out our sediment traps. I think we'll get information. <laughs> so we went, we went back down, we put out our sediment traps. Um, and then we, you know, luckily, I, you know, we had been there so often, we knew where the boat was. So we went back to the boat, um, got on the boat. By then, we probably had about four inches of ash on it. Mm. And we started the engines. We had two, one cut out. And we just traveled, you know, it was going east to west. And we traveled north until we got out of the ash. And it took us about, I'd say, about four hours before it really was safe to come in and before we could come back in. But, uh, you know, we were fortunate. Most people were fortunate. There was some loss of life of about 20 people, which is really tragic, um, including people we knew and mm -hmm. really, very, really, very sad um, who'd been in the evacuation mm -hmm. zone. But, um, but then we talked with the volcanologists and, and they said, look, we think you've got a window of opportunity. You can go back if you want to retrieve the sediment traps. And so two days later, we went back out and, and picked up the sediment traps, which told us how much ash had dropped on the corals. But what was one of the most extraordinary things to see was, um, you know, these round corals. So some corals are round, they're shaped like heads or brain corals, and others are shaped like trees, mm -hmm. you know, and the tree corals tend to grow very quickly, whereas the round corals mm -hmm. tend to grow slowly, and that's in general. And what we saw was that the tree corals got covered in ash, but they couldn't clean the ash off themselves. Whereas the round corals, they just wafted it and it just sort of fell off. Mm. And so um, these slow-growing corals actually did much better in this heavy sediment. I mean, in this case, it's volcanic ash, so that's a little extreme. But they were doing much better in those sort of conditions than these branching corals. So, you know, it really gave you a th uh, an idea that there's a you know, there's a trade-off between being able to grow quickly and get all the sunlight and being able to handle these other conditions, which is why I think we've got one of the reasons we have such great biodiversity on reefs that these conditions come and go. But we learned so much in that experience. It was um, and felt very fortunate to to survive it. Obviously, yeah. So you were already you were already there to do conduct surveys of the of the coral reef and kind of come up yeah. with your own assessments when this happened. Yeah. 
And it, it was it was interesting, uh, and I think this kind of is relevant to how we think about climate change and changing worlds today. We had by then come up with a preliminary design for what a, a reserve might look like. Where would be good fisheries areas? Where would be good, you know, high use areas? Where would be good uh, areas to protect? Um, one of the areas we protected was the area that got covered in ash, mm. and. You know, so in essence, we got an opportunity to test our own ideas, you know, albeit quite dramatically. But, it, you know, I will be honest, the design we had come up with would not have been good for a volcanic eruption. Now, we don't normally think about designing for volcanic eruptions, but it, it really, as we came into dealing with climate change and changes in sea level, it really had in the back of my mind this idea of future planning for these rare events mm-hmm. that could actually be the drivers of, of our ability for reefs to survive or the ability of systems to survive. So it was, um, I learned, I learned a lot in that experience, you know, was, um, absolutely. Was, uh, you know, not, not to mention like don't dive under an active volcano. It is not a good idea. <laughs> you know. <laughs> have you been back to dive there? Yes. Yes, I have. Yes. Yeah. I've been back. there. Yeah. yeah. Very careful. We always work careful but we really checked the like the volcanic schedule how active was it and you know like were we safe and all of that so mm-hmm. yeah so that was that was the first that was the first one yes and the uh, second one was um was actually a plane crash and again it, it oddly enough it is related to the mm-hmm. ocean i was over in indonesia at a the coral reef conference and um, giving a paper and we had um you know, taking a bit of time afterwards to go and dive and snorkel on these reefs, which, I mean, the Indonesian reefs, Indonesia is kind of the cradle of biodiversity for coral reefs. So it's where you find the most diversity and in, in the most color, the most number of fish. It's very beautiful. Mm-hmm. And we were on this particular reef and I had been, I remember just going down, we were actually doing a drift snorkel and this huge sea turtle came up beside me and, and we snorkeled along together. You know, it was, uh, we made eye contact and it was, I mean, it was just one of those beautiful moments where you're swimming over this extraordinary reef and there's a turtle swimming next mm-hmm. to you, nearly as big as myself. Um, and then, you know, at one point it, it turned right and went off out to the ocean and I continued back to the boat. But the following day we were flying back to the States and we were, uh, there was a hurricane, a typhoon in the area. And we landed to refuel in Taiwan for the last leg, Taiwan to L.A., and the hurricane had hit Taiwan at that point, and the plane was leaving uh, close to midnight. And they, you know, the plane was shaking on the ground. I mean, it was so windy and so storm was so strong. But the plane took off. It uh, turned, made the wrong turn. It didn't turn on the right runway. Turned on the wrong runway and started to take off and barrel down. And it ended up actually at the end of that runway was a construction zone. So the plane tried to take off. Um, and hit the construction zone on the way up. And that pierced the fuel tank and the whole plane blew up. Um, so just, we were, I don't know, maybe 100 feet off the ground and everything just exploded. Mm-hmm. And I was extremely fortunate to survive it. I had actually changed my seat as I was getting on the plane because I wanted to be, I wanted to go the, like further back to be able to sleep. And they gave me a seat right at the back. Had I not, had I not done that, I would not mm-hmm. be here. Um, it's one of those chance events of life because the people I had been seated with um, did not make it, um, you know, prior to like prior to that. 
I think for me that really that event really um, brought home how important nature is to us because I was you know in Taiwan we're in the middle of a hurricane communications are down it's nobody knows what's going on my family didn't know where I was and I remember being you know being in the hotel and and trying to deal with all the stress of what was happening just trying to figure things out and I couldn't sleep I couldn't rest and I filled up the bathtub in this hotel room and I got in there and I put my head under water and I literally took myself back to that reef that I described mm-hmm. to you where I had snorkeling with a turtle and I just felt I just felt so relaxed I felt so calm and after that when I came home I would go to the ocean and I would start to you know just to really make sense of it to come back from it and just to to if you like commune with nature and, and use nature to bring resilience back into my life because you know nature as, as discovered deals with volcanoes hurricanes and everything else um and just to have that that time with nature to really be able to process things, and I I think this was this was a very important part of me realizing that nature is our ally both as individuals in in what nature provides us in in solace and beauty and extraordinary things to see, but also in protecting us from sea level rise, storm surges, you know, landslides. Nature provides all of these incredible services to us. Mm-hmm. And that, in part, started me on my trajectory to start looking at how do we better engage with nature? How do we better leverage nature services? How do we work more harmoniously with nature to create communities, to create businesses that are in alignment with nature and make us more resilient? Mm-hmm. So that, that, was the, that was really the start of that journey. And I think that will resonate with people now during the pandemic because you know, the one thing that, you know, we're almost a year into it, but it was very clear and still is that very early on, people in lockdown, we started noticing more birds. We started noticing more animals. Mm-hmm. We started going out in more and just feeling good from going for a walk or feeling good, even if it's in your back garden, you know. And I think we have to hold on to that feeling that we got and that lesson we've just learned and take it forward. Yes, Absolutely working with the resiliency of nature because nature really, really is the ultimate. I mean, it's been around for eons. It's been through everything and it keeps coming back in its own forms. So learning to work with it. I love that. And is that what inspired you to create your own firm? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, Because I've been working both in academia and nonprofit world for for a long time. And I still am engaged in academic Mm -hmm. work. But I, I started to think about how do we how do we reach out to people who don't mm-hmm. think like us as in someone who who may be driven by different you know different reasons maybe they want to do big developments maybe they mm-hmm. want to make a lot of money um how do we engage people who have different set of priorities and start to work with them so that they can see that regardless of their priorities there is a role for nature and nature can fit in with that mm-hmm. so doing now a lot of work with you know investors being one and fairly I would say fairly select developers who are interested in this field and getting more interested I'll give you a couple of examples because I think that's better than than just um me saying abstractly we were working with somebody out in St. Bart's actually the owner who bought this huge property and and effectively bought a beach you know an entire beach was his uh, property front 
And he was originally thinking about doing a, a seawall because a lot of the dune had been eroding, had been overused, and to protect his property, protect his privacy. And so he came to us and he said, look, we want to do a seawall, but apparently nobody likes that idea. Hmm. You know, we're like, well, I'm sure they don't, you know, because it's uh... and so we, we talked with him and said, look, we think you have better options here. And I said, look, I think if we can restore this sand dune that you have, vegetate it. Mm-hmm. That dune will not only protect your beach, but it will help to grow the beach. So you will have a wider beach, and, but it will, the beach will come and go with wave action as beaches do. But ultimately, you will maintain your beach and you'll have your privacy. And, you know, it'll be a living, it's a living, living solution. He said, that sounds good to me. Why don't we, why don't we go and, and do it? So we got the permission to do it. And then about, took about 18 months. And we worked with uh, his kind of local manager, a man called Jim Booz, who really got into this whole idea of using dunes and nature-based solutions and within a year and a half, we had a fully restored dune that looked like it had been there for about 25 years mm. and to a height of about, you know, 12 feet, four, four meters. That dune withstood every hurricane that hit it, including Hurricane Irma in 2017, which hit it at, you know, category five plus. You know, the dune took a beating from this these horrendous winds and, and um, storm surge, but it literally held the line. And so when the insurance adjuster came down to look at it, he said, look, I'm going to be honest with you. If you had not rebuilt that dune, your entire property and your home would be flo- have floated out to sea by now. We were really, you know, we were like, that's it. <laughs> but coming back to, to the other side of it, it's um, this, just this one project alone saved him $750,000 in construction. Mm-hmm. He had no maintenance. Because effectively, you know, nature keeps growing, mm-hmm. and he, and and heaven knows, you know, how much it saved him in the loss of his home. You know, let's add another several million to that. So there is both the financial case to make for protecting nature, as well as a biodiversity case, as well as the beauty mm-hmm. situation. And you know, we're doing this now. We have two other projects that we're in, involved with. One is actually where. Um, a developer has agreed that, you know, we said, look, if you want to build, you've got to be back a certain amount from the ocean to deal with sea level rise. But the dunes in this area had been sand mined. And we said, you've got to restore them to at least about 12 feet. So we're building seven miles of dune to protect this area and protect the community against sea level rise. And we just had our first last week, you know, so. I was going to ask, what does that look like? How do you build that much dune? That's it seems like a huge task. It is. It's um, it's industrial strength. Um, so it, in essence, to do that, you you know, for the first project, we we were, we were able to use even just wheelbarrows, you know, with workers uh, setting the hole up from the beach. But if you're doing seven miles of dune, you've got to be using excavators. You're moving a lot of sand around. So this is. The sand is there. It's it's re, repurposing and repositioning the sand to to reform this dune that used to exist before this ring like dune, and that that's heavy duty equipment. I mean, this is um, you know, it, it really involves it involves if you like almost construction workers. It involves people who are, you know, I guess really construction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, if you're using excavators and other heavy equipment, you need people that are licensed to do that, and that's typically people in the construction world. Yeah. 
And we're doing, we're about to start another project, uh, which is similar to that, which is coral reefs. So we're working with a man called uh, John Paul de Gioia, who's a philanthropist and environmentalist. And we were, I was talking with him about the role of coral reefs in, in really the resilience that they break the waves energy and that a lot of them are in trouble, as, as you know, as they sink, as they collapse and sink or as sea level rises, the waves that are coming in are, much, are coming in much stronger because the reef doesn't break them. And so the stronger the waves come in, the further in they go. So if we, if we have a drop of, of anywhere like half a meter to a meter, which is what one and a half to one foot of reef, you can get as much as, you know, 3,000 meters, which is what, about 9,000 feet of run-up extra than mm-hmm. you would have, you know, which is way, you know, goes way into people's properties usually by then. What we're about to, to do here is to do a major call. We just put a team together to do a major, to restore an acre of reef, building a reef, using the, the mm-hmm. structure that was there. You know, these, um, a lot of tree branching, the ones I mentioned earlier, they form the main barrier reef. So we're going to construct a reef. So elkhorn and staghorn corals, the acroporos. Acroporos, yes. Yeah. And then repopulate it with those species because they will take that structure and grow with it. But the thing um, that's different about this is that we, we're doing it on a large scale. And you got me thinking about it when we were asking about how you do it. And I said, you know, with excavators and construction workers, as we're, as we're thinking about restoring mm-hmm. ecosystems and bringing it back, we need to be thinking at that scale. We need to be, we've got, we've learned a lot from doing the small scale experiments and projects, but the scale of the problem is huge. You know, we're losing, you know, at least half of our reefs are gone at the rate we're going. There's another 90% at risk. If we don't come up with a solution that is, you know, technologically sound, but also large enough that we will address the problem at, at mm-hmm. that level, you know, we, we could um, we could lose that fight. I think we need to do that. And, and that means that, you know, marine biologists of all sorts will be involved, you know, construction marine biologists, marine biologists, you know, people who, who like to manage marine projects. It's, it really takes everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is a, it's a huge task and a huge undertaking when you think about the entirety of the ocean and not just an acre, which an acre is a huge undertaking in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. It will, I mean, an acre is a huge thing to do and it's, you know, it's a major job, but you look at it and you go, mm, well, that's actually in, in the grand scheme of things, even when you put it on the map, it's not huge. But if we do that way and, and do it and, and do it with an ability that it's replicable, but also can be expanded, then we're on our way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what does that, what does that look like? Are you growing some of the fragments onshore and then outplanting them offshore? Or are you collecting op- like fragments of opportunity out in the fields and outplanting them that so way? It's in, this one is in the process of starting. We've, we've worked on, on smaller projects before and the plan for this is to actually set up a nursery. We will find corals of opportunity that you you talk about and these are corals that have they've often settled in an area where they're not going to survive or the storm has gone through and that coral has been fragmented and and you've got loose pieces of corals so there you just opportunistically find them 
So we will start with mm-hmm. those and kind of bring them into the nursery and, and grow them up a little more. Um, and then we'll start to think about um, which ones survive and then how to fragment them. One of you know you, you probably know as the oceans are getting warmer and more acidic, these corals are getting stressed. What we found in the Caribbean, I think they found elsewhere too, is that there have been several bleaching events. Like 2015 was a major bleaching event in the, in the Caribbean where corals get, water temperature goes up, corals, if you like, overheat. And the plants that live in the corals and give them their color, just either the coral expels them or they leave. And then usually the coral, usually, but not always, the coral dies. And what we found was that there were some corals that recovered because then they, they got their plants back. But there were also ones that didn't bleach and that didn't die during this warming event. So if we can tap into whatever, whether it's genetic, which probably is, we can tap into that ability of these corals to withstand these conditions and use those corals to seed the next generation of reef, then we give those reefs a head start. And there's, there's a lot of work going on around the world. There's a lot of scientists now working, particularly in labs, that are really researching, you know, how to, how to grow these corals, how to identify them, and actually how to create them. So there's a lot of exciting work going on around the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, there is a lot of research, particularly with corals, and there's a lot of genetic research being done with corals to see what, how corals are surviving, because there are some, thankfully, that are able to survive this massive stressor event that is the ocean rising and become or heating up and becoming a little bit more acidic as yeah well. yeah it's, it's it's phenomenal you know and mm-hmm. uh, and the work that's coming out of these labs is just great and so useful i don't know about you but i look at this last year and i see what scientists have been able to do in creating viral vaccines to this pandemic that's really you know, disrupted all of our lives and you think if we can do that in a year, what couldn't we do for oceans and corals? You know, when we put our mind to it, you know, it's uh, it's have to come together and do it. Yes, I agree. You had a you had a quote in I think it was one of your Huffington Post articles. It's uh, nature is not a nice to have; it's a need to have. And I think your work really highlights that it's it's uh, without the resiliency of nature, then we wouldn't have what we have, you know, if that, if your property owner had built a seawall and in the face of Irma, it would have been overcome by waves and storm surge and wind, whereas the natural dune was able to withstand the beating and, and hold strong. Yes. Yeah. And, and like you say, we see it in, you know, along the East coast and South coast of the U S too, you know, you're in Florida and these marshes, the, the value of marshes in particular, you know, and again, again, offshore reefs for these coastal marshes and mangroves are, they really make the difference. Absolutely. So you had an article and I think that's a really nice way to kind of bring it into the everyday life, how to align with nature. And you had three principles behind it. What is it? What, what do you have? You know, what do you have locally? Um, is it healthy and what can you do to take action? Do you, do you have like a project or a particular area that comes to mind when you think of these principles that you could kind of share a little bit more about? I, I think um, I, can, I can talk to you from our, our projects or just even more generally, but I think these apply to, to everybody and wherever you are, whether you're in a city 
whether you are somewhere like Colorado, where you're in the mountains, and the forests have a huge role to play in, in protecting you mm -hmm. from basically, often landslides, to be honest, or, or um, landslides, um, and they also play a large role in flood protection. Um, so, you know, f like for us in our, in our projects and the ones we're doing, and, and a lot of the work we're doing right now is in reefs and mangroves and, and coastal marshes. We've gone out and we've looked at these as to, you know, literally, first question is, what do they do? What services do they provide? Well, they provide protection against storms. They provide fisheries. They, they reduce water pollution. Mangroves and marshes will do a lot with that. Um, they reduce flooding. And then if you look at what, is, what are these systems capable of, and then go and look in your own, like your own area and say, well, you know, do I have healthy marshes? Or are these marshes filled with trash? Are they filled up with sediments? Are they filled with invasive species? And if they are, we know that they're not providing that level of services. Coral reefs, are the coral reefs um, damaged, broken, or people uh, you know, hitting them with um, anchors or even worse, are they blowing holes in them so they can create these passages for boats? You know, if that's the case, you know you don't have a, a healthy system. And then it comes back to, well, you know, what, what can I do about it, uh, you know, as somebody who cares about it, somebody who's a citizen of that community, what action can I take? And that can be anything from, you know, being a scientist to literally engaging with your wider community, working with the wider community to find solutions and implement them. Or it can be talking to your local politicians and saying, look, we've got this issue, we need to take this action. Or maybe even becoming a local politician. That's not a bad idea either, you know? So you become decision makers. Or just getting just getting involved. It's extraordinary that what people can do once they pay attention and get involved. And I mm -hmm. think that holds true, particularly for scientists to get involved in their communities. Absolutely. Another uh, term that you came up with or I don't know if you came up with it but I first time I heard it was when you're writing is a nouveau environmentalism and you really um, kind of highlight this with a lot of your work is getting stakeholders together through a commonality of cause so you're trying to look for common ground that unites rather than divides people so for stakeholders for coral reefs for example you have the fishermen that want to uh, fish the reef but then you have divers that want to be able to enjoy the reef without the threat of fishermen or fishing hooks all over the reef. Um, and then you have the property owners that there that benefit from the reef being there and whole and intact. So it's really, it's really interesting, the commonality of cause or yeah, commonality of cause. How do you start that conversation, getting these stakeholders together? Cause a lot of times people are just so set in their ways and they're so entrenched in their own mentality of how things should be with that resource that they're not always willing to listen to the other side. I, I think that's, that's well said. I mean, I think that's exactly the challenge you face. The first is that they are very entrenched and they have a view as to how it should be. But the other thing they have is a fear of the other side. You know, uh, I worked in the California Redwoods of California a number of years ago, and it was clear to me that the People working in, in the, these coastal forests had worked there for generations mm -hmm. and they were afraid that the environmentalists were going to destroy their way of life um, and that the environmental groups were afraid that these mm -hmm. you know, loggers would continue going until there was nothing left of the ecosystem. 
and neither actually was, was headed in the direction the other thought they were headed in. So I think two things. First is that people want to be heard. They want people to understand their point of view, where they're coming from. And in that conversation, you hear what's important and you also hear what's, you know, what's their greatest fear, loss of livelihood, loss of community. And probably you listen and you think, you know, loss of community, that's really important. And it's really, it would be important to me. And from the environmental perspective, it's the same thing. The value of environmentalism, the value of protecting our, our natural world, the value of the, the beauty of it, our dependence on it, just this extraordinary nature that we've been given, that is a very strong value. And it will offer to you know, people in the community who exploit the resource. So step one is to listen. And step two then is to make people know that they've been heard. If they've been heard, then they feel like they've got a, a viewpoint. And then the third is to listen to what in, in these conversations that you mm. start, what is it that people have said that, that resonates with each other? And if you get mm-hmm. everybody in the same room and you can have a conversation about it, people very quickly figure out where they share commonality with somebody on the other side of the table that perhaps they didn't even know they did. It's getting people together in a really in a, a framework of respect and being able to listen, even if, you know, I, I've, I've been in those situations where people have talked about how, you know, their, their values and how they want to use nature. And it's not something that I would necessarily believe in or want. But yet, sometimes you can do really great things with the people who have different set of priorities. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really good point hearing the other side and not just to hear their concerns, but to also recognize that each side is a person and they, everybody has their own fears and concerns and to be able to hear them out and recognize and see the humanity in that um, can help go a long way in bridging gaps and working together. Yeah. Well said, Tara. Absolutely. And I think there's a value too, and that we all learn in that process. You know, I, I may feel that I'm an expert on certain things of the ocean, but if you're speaking with people who use the resource differently, you find that they have a, mm-hmm. a way of seeing, a way of learning, and a certain level of knowledge that perhaps you hadn't thought about. And to work, everybody going in there with a certain open mind, everybody learns, which is really exciting. It truly is. So that segues fairly nicely into, I always like to leave the audience with a conservation ask, um, something for them to go out and do and bring into the world from each episode. What is your conservation ask? Oh, uh, my conservation ask to your audience would be to become a citizen scientist. Um, We need people engaged with science. We need people out there gathering information that will help us better conserve and better manage our planet and our natural resources. And I feel this is really important right now because in the last year, there has been such a a disconnect and a polarization between science and community that's arisen and that we need to heal that. And fundamentally, we're all scientists at the end of the day. We We all make decisions based on knowledge and data and observation. Everybody is a scientist. You're a scientist. You're born a scientist. You just have to remember that. So my ask would be to get engaged with citizen science programs, no matter you know, <laughs> what aspect of the ocean you're, you care about. So, for instance, um, if you're a scuba diver or a snorkeler, uh, mm-hmm. Project AWARE, which is a 
an international conservation group, have a great program called Dive Against Debris. And it's where you dive and you take debris out of the ocean, but you also record the debris. And now they're like, now I think they've published three, two or three scientific papers on where debris is located, what kind of debris and how better to manage it. So, and this is all collected by, I think they, mm-hmm. there's something like 11 million data points collected entirely by citizen divers. Uh, there's another organization called SciStarter, um, which is completely devoted to citizen science programs, everything from, you can do everything from the oceans to outer space. Um, but for oceans, it's a great place to look at what projects are there, what projects you can engage in. It was started by a woman called Darlene Cavalier, who's done an amazing job. And, you know, there's so much that you can engage in on that, uh, on the work that they've been doing. And like I said, the value of this too is that it's all over the world. So if you're in the US listening to this, or you're in Australia listening to this, you can find out what projects are there and connect with them. But even in more generally, I'm sure everybody in their community knows people who are engaged in in science programs or citizen science programs or conservation organizations that are starting to do more of these. Surfrider Foundation, you know, was one of the big organizations that really stopped marine pollution on the West Coast by giving their surfers little bottles to collect water samples. How simple is that and how profound that it, you know, had a huge impact on stopping ocean pollution. So citizen scientists, get engaged. Get engaged, get involved. I love it. Yeah, please. Yeah, we need you. We need you. And the amount of work you'll do is so rewarding and it'll make a huge difference. Wonderful. And one of my very, very favorite questions to ask is, what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could just be a day out out in the field and it was magical and all the things went right or it could be a day where all the things went wrong and it makes a really great story now oh well i, I think i've had a couple of uh, field experiences that have gone badly wrong so you know like um being blown that's a good one um wow i think i've had so many extraordinary experiences in the field i think a day in the field some of the best days in the field for me are when I've gone out with my colleagues and students and we, you know, we've literally gone out in the morning and spent the entire day looking at nature, being underwater, just, you know, sitting around, having lunch together at the end of the day, sharing a glass of wine, waiting for the green flash if it's uh, evening. Mm-hmm. And, and just that sense of community that we build is, is amazing. Um, and uh, I'm going to stop a second because I'm trying to think, you probably want a particular story, right? So I will give you a, a, a field story. Um, field story is when we uh, we went out um, to look at these reefs, uh, coral reefs, and I had a boat that I'd rented. And I had so there was me and there was a woman working for me and a student. And I was in charge of the boat. And we went up to look at these reefs and it was extraordinary. And we loved it so much that I said, oh, let's go look at some other reefs and some other reefs. And we did. And we, we spent so much time out there that I didn't notice and we ran out of gas. <laughs> we were in the middle of, well, we were offshore in the middle of, and we had no gas and we weren't really prepared. Um, and then this fishing boat went by. So we were jumping up and down, like trying to get noticed by this guy. And it was a guy and his son. And they came around and they saw us and they just literally threw a rope at us. They didn't stop. And the three of us caught this rope 
and they, and they towed us back in with the three of us holding onto this rope so none of us would be like overboard. It was like, it was the scariest thing we did, but we and I think it was our first day in this new site, so we became very <laughs> famous for our, uh, our I guess our lack of marine and you know boating power. Man, yep, so that was one. That's a fun story. <laughs> Run, running out of gas is always a problem, but particularly so when you're out in the middle of the ocean. Well, I just realized I've done that three times. So if you ever go on the boat with Dr. Brosnan, make sure you bring gas with you. Check the gas tank, yeah. And make sure she doesn't get carried away by going, oh, just one more sight. Oh, just one more look, you know? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. You mentioned earlier the green flash. Could you explain a little bit more about the phenomenon that happens at sunset? Yeah, it happens. Um, I've only seen it in the tropics, but it is as the sun goes over the horizon, literally just as it disappears behind the horizon on a clear, on a very clear sky, you see this sudden green flash. And I don't know that I can fully explain the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure anybody can, but it's, uh, it you know, it, it's real. For a long time, scientists doubted it existed uh, and people did. And then there were some pictures and some studies done to explain, you know, it has to do with light scattering, obviously. But it, it's a neon green flash that appears in the sky just over the sun. So after a hard day in the field, we would all get a beer and sit on the wall or sit on whatever and watch the sun go down. And if it was a green flash night, just wait for the green flash. It's amazing. I haven't seen it. I've looked many times, but... I'm not on the west coast of Florida, so I have to like travel to go see that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you, Carl, you just have to come down and visit us on our on our field sites and come and see what we're doing and engage with us. And then we will take you out for a glass of wine or a beer at the end of the evening and we'll make sure you see a green flash. Perfect. I'm in. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time to be on the show today. I really enjoyed our chat. Thank you, Cara. I really did too. And like I said, thank you so much for, for bringing marine biology into the lives of so many people. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.